Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to this fireside chat. My name is Charlie Dehoney. I'm currently serving as the president of uh, the Great Plains Division of Fitzmark Incorporated out of Indianapolis, Indiana. I've got a long background in transportation, largely at the intersection of transportation and technology. I'm really excited today to have Alden Woodrow of Ike um, here to join us today and share a little bit about his entrepreneurial journey. Uh, hey, Alden, nice to see you today. Hi, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Thanks to FreightWaves. Yeah, no doubt. So um, we've had a couple of, of good conversations leading up to this discussion today, and I'm super excited to really get into uh, your entire journey, your background, and kind of how you got to where you're at today and the problems you're solving over at Ike. So um, can you please start us off by just kind of like understanding how did you end up in the Silicon Valley? What was your journey like uh, through product management? And ultimately, what was the aha moment that brought you to Ike? Sure. Um, I'm a little bit of an atypical founder of a company here in Silicon Valley. I was a philosophy and economics major at a liberal arts school in New England, uh, not uh, not born in California and not an engineer, uh, but I have the fortune of working with some pretty smart engineers, both here at Ike and in other experiences prior to this. The short version is I, um, after working as an economist for a number of years, kind of accidentally ended up in technology, working at a startup that was developing a new renewable energy technology. We ended up joining Google, and I was part of a team at Google called Google X that is uh, still in existence and developing a number of new technologies, uh, actually pretty focused on industrial uh, opportunities in, in a variety of sectors. Uh, I then took an opportunity to go work in product management at Uber ATG, where I helped lead the truck program there for a few years and learned a lot of valuable lessons about uh, the industry that we're talking about today and the place where we've started to focus a lot over the last couple of years. Uber was not the right place to build a truck product specifically. Um, that Uber was going to always be pretty focused on cars for good reasons and continues to be, other than Uber Freight, which we may talk about a little bit today as well. Um, and so uh, several of my colleagues and I decided to leave Uber, but we still wanted to work together and we still wanted to work on trucks. We've become really passionate about the industry, learned a lot about the, the big challenges that uh, we face, which I think probably have come up in a bunch of discussions at this event. And we felt like we had an opportunity to do something a little bit different and still get to work together. And so about two years ago, we started Ike with a focus on building automation technology for class eight trucks. And I can certainly tell you more about where we're focused, uh, but we've now been at this for a couple of years and are making some great progress and started to forge some uh, pretty important partnerships in the industry. So although one of the things I think that um, was really enlightening in our first discussion that I don't hear from a lot of uh, classically trained scholars, right? I mean, is, is your journey into transportation and logistics uh, was windy to say the least, right? But uh, a lot of folks with your intellect and brain power and certainly that of your team come into the logistics world and they immediately assume logistics is broken and they're going to reinvent the wheel. Um, I don't get that feeling from you. Talk to me about how you and your team are focused on sort of meeting the industry where it is today and then helping it get to where you think it can be. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting about having a chance to work at large tech companies like Google and Uber and, and Apple, where my co-founders worked, uh, as well as small startups, is you get to experience a, a range of perspectives, and we certainly have experienced the kind of typical Silicon Valley philosophy, which I would say is 
very focused on disruption, right? I think there's a stereotype about many of the companies and the people here in our area that uh, they come into established industries to a large degree with a with a beginner's mind, right? And they say, well, we're smart and, and uh, we can figure out how to do things better. And I think there are some things that are valuable about that, right? Having a new perspective can be useful, but actually to a large degree, I think the way Silicon Valley historically interfaces with established industries like freight or aerospace or any number of other, uh, uh, you know, high, uh, high sophistication and large scale businesses is to be a little bit naive about how hard things are in the industry, what kind of sophistication and experience is needed in order to actually run a business. Uh, and often just a little bit too focused on kind of coming in and being the smartphone to the analog phone, right? And I, I've experienced that in a, in a few different industries. And I think really learned some valuable lessons about how sophisticated, if we're talking about freight in particular, how sophisticated the industry is, the value of the many decades of experience that many people have um, in this segment, and how that applies into building a very productive, very safe, very important part of our economy. And so we come to this as a result of that experience with a lot of modesty and understanding that while we think we have some new things uh, to bring, some new ideas and some expertise, um, we also have a huge amount of respect for all of the expertise that already exists. And that's really played into the way we think about building our technology and our product, how we're establishing partnerships, but just most importantly, the position that we want to take as trying to be part of the trucking industry, trying to help contribute to freight being successful instead of coming in and, and trying to act like we know more than anybody else or smarter than anybody else and, and are going to disrupt things because we just don't think that'll be particularly successful. And I think that's so smart. And I, you know, I, I, having taken some lumps along the way and been involved in some of these high-tech uh, enabled startups that are in the logistics and supply chain space, using words like disruption, um, ultimately, you know, you've got to think at the core of your customer's business, disruption is a really bad thing. If you're in the supply chain and there's any kind of a disruption, like that's when things are not going well. So I think that's really intelligent how you guys are uh, sort of trying to come in with an eyes wide open approach, certainly not, you know, see everything through the, the old way of doing things, but also providing, um, providing a path to the future for the industry from where it is today. I think that's super smart. Um, it also kind of resonated with me when you talk to me about how your team thought about coming up with an MVP and really what an MVP looks like in the world of autonomous trucking. And I thought it's brilliant how, you know, you guys weren't the ones with the drone footage of the Budweiser truck hauling the load of beer, because we've seen that movie. And I think we've seen it a couple of times now. In fact, it's, it almost seems like any really disruptive startup that wants to get some publicity does a deal with Anheuser-Busch. So it kind of leads me to wonder how much Anheuser-Busch actually pays for that technology or if they ever do. Um, but can you talk to the, the audience here a little bit more about how you guys approached uh, bringing an MVP to market that would allow you to go uh, raise the capital that you would need that would enable you to build the team that you were going to need to build a viable MVP that was actually going to allow you to go capture the right amount of capital? I think this is a great topic for the subject of this event, actually, because we sit in a very different place than most of the founders that are going to get interviewed here and most of the founders that work and, and companies that work in the freight tech space and in supply chain. You asked me a question about what was our MVP that allowed us to raise capital? And 
and as I as I mentioned when we first talked, we do not have a product today. Uh, we you know we are not offering a solution. We're still in development of our product, in part because what we're doing is so challenging, so technically difficult that we have more work to do. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is maybe a couple of things. The first is that it's totally understandable for most startups to try to drive to an MVP as quickly as possible, right? A minimum viable product for those who aren't familiar with that term, because you need to demonstrate some traction in the market. You need to do that to learn and to grow. And so uh, that's a very common philosophy, I think, especially in, in recent times in Silicon Valley and in other places that are developing uh, products for this space. I think that's totally understandable. When you're building automation technology of the kind that Ike is focused on, there's a new layer of challenge, which is the safety criticality of the system. Our, our, uh, the trucks that we're powering are going to share the road with families in minivans and with other truckers and with other people out on the road. And so what a minimum viable product means in that context is a much, much higher bar, right? The viability requires a very high level of safety and, and reliability. And so I think one of the places where we have made mistakes in the past as individuals in different places we've worked is on trying to, to, to tread that path of an MVP with a technology that is really hard to build an MVP for. And so that's one of the things we wanted to be honest and upfront about uh, as, we built the, as, we, as we built the technology and as we continue to build it to say, um, we are really excited about building something constrained and commercially valuable on a reasonable time frame. Right, which we could certainly talk more about, but that's not going to happen in the first few weeks of the company's existence, right? And so instead, we focused on um, what I call the invisible work, a lot of things that are needed in order to help us build a long-term product and really to try to be upfront with prospective investors and recruits and partners that the technology is not done. Um, and if we were to try to pretend that it was, uh, we'd really just be doing ourselves a disservice and, in the worst case, actually putting people at risk, right, by, by trying to demonstrate something that just isn't quite ready yet. And so we've tried to be very diligent and rigorous about taking um, steps to, to do that carefully. And I think it sort of ties in a bit to uh, our fundraising process, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But one of the things we did when we made the rounds of Sand Hill Road a couple of years ago and raised our first large institutional round was to very explicitly say in those partner meetings uh, to a lot of very smart and successful investors, if you want us to launch a product in this space in the next 18 months, you should not invest in this company because that is not possible and we're not going to pretend that it is. <laughs> we wanna be honest with you about um, what this is gonna take. And you know, I think that caused us probably to lose out on, on certain opportunities with certain investors, but a lot of them actually found that very refreshing, even though it really runs counter to the typical way, I think very understandably, that you might build a product in, you know, as a startup in any given space. And so we try to be really thoughtful about that distinction. And we still obviously are working fast and, and working really hard to try to get something into the market. Uh, but we think it's important to highlight that as a difference compared to, you know, nearly any other technology that you might try to build for the freight industry today. So you mean to tell me that you were successful at going up and down Sand Hill Road and raising Silicon Valley institutional investment money without selling vaporware, without any clickable prototypes, without any promises or overhype of what you have and when it's going to come out. You just went and you put the cards on the table. You said, this is what the journey and, and this is what the path is going to look like. If you want to come along for the ride, 
here's the team that can do it and you can bet on us. And if you're not in, we're fine. And if I had to guess, you've probably seen some of those people that were not in, you've probably seen them make other bets in the space. Has that, has that come to, to fruition at all? Yeah. You know, I think there's, um, there's, there's a range of different philosophies here. And uh, I, I don't think we claim to have all the answers or to have figured everything out. What we know is we've tried it um, other ways, right? In fact, we, we have people on our team who were part of, um, you know, the demo that, that you described and, uh, and, and there's certain value to telling that story, I think. Um, what we wanted to do was not just do that again, right? And we feel like that story has been told the expectations have been set in certain ways, and we've learned valuable lessons from that experience. And so mo more than anything, we want to apply that experience uh, and, and just try to think about the way we think is actually needed to get this done. So it is true that we did what you, what you described. We had a couple of other advantages, one of which was a license agreement with our partner, Neuro. So we actually were able to take a copy of all of Neuro's technology, which we felt was uh, the best automation stack in the world. Uh, back in 2018, when we when we first partnered with them, and they've gone on to do some valuable things. And so, to a large degree, I think what allowed us to raise that that capital was the combination of our team's experience um, and some of the things we've talked about. A pretty clear view on what it was going to take to build a real product in this area, even though our timeline stretched out longer than probably most venture capitalists were used to seeing in, on Sand Hill Road. And then plugging in this advantage that we've gotten from the neurotechnology, which gives us a huge head start in ways that actually really still aren't visible publicly. Like there's a lot of stuff that I think we sure. built on top of and a lot of progress we've made that we really haven't shown off yet because some of it is kind of invisible. But we, we have a lot of confidence that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more visible in the future. Well, that's awesome. I definitely want to get back to the neuro story because as un-Silicon Valley as some of the elements of your capital raise strategy has been the neuro story. That's like as Silicon Valley as it gets. So I think we need to get to that, but it really brought to mind um, sort of that education learn curve of the investor, right? Like autonomous, you probably weren't the first guy to walk in there and pitch an autonomous solution. You certainly weren't the last guy, but there's something to be said about finding investors that kind of understand the problem that you're getting to. And I know firsthand, you know, being um, on the forefront of, of, you know, some of these investment rounds and some of these tech-enabled startups over the last, you know, call it seven to 10 years. And, you know, in 2012, 2013, uh, the investor deck used to be pages and pages and pages and pages about the space and slicing and dicing where your little niche focus would be and defending why FedEx and UPS weren't going to just come in and do these things themselves. And now there's really a, a cohort or a community of investors that have spent time studying our space and really gotten themselves up the learn curve. And, yep. and I find it um, quite interesting that, you know, somebody selling a solution as, as, you know, complicated as yours was able to go out there and connect those dots very quickly, which is super, super important in terms of being able to time the market. Right. So um, I think that is the lead into the neuro story. So I think the, the audience would love to hear you know, uh, you had a group of guys or, or folks and they're interested in going out and solving this problem. And then you were able to, you know, with a couple of chess moves, have a small round, have a company put together, and then you're right back on the fundraising tail. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. All great. Uh, all great setup. I think, um, maybe with respect to the, to the investor experience piece of it, which I think is, is a great point, And it's definitely been, 
um, our experience. The investors that we ended up getting traction with and those that are on our cap table today kind of fall into three buckets in, in my experience. The first is technology investors that have seen the movie before that you described, right? And sort of they've been along for the journey, they see the opportunity, but they also are not really that excited about the playbook from 2016 or 2017. And they wanted to see an evolution. And I think that's part of what we got them. The next is a set of very deep technology experts. We have some on our cap table as well who were really interested in digging in and understanding why our team and the neurotechnology in particular gave us a pretty big strategic advantage, right? That they, I have a uh, sort of a fun anecdote that my CTO and co-founder asked me at one point during our fundraising process, when do the investors look at the code base? When do they do their diligence of looking at the code and figuring out how good it is? Because that's, you know, that's one of our big advantages. And we had to sort of explain to him, well, no, nobody's really going to do that level of diligence. It probably would be a smart thing to do, but but that doesn't typically happen. We did have some investors that got pretty close to that. And then the third category are investors who, who really deeply understand the freight space, who come from automotive backgrounds or have made other investments and who we can who we can kind of skip over some of that introductory material where they understand the value proposition, they understand the specific business model that we're taking and that sort of stuff. So that's sort of how it's evolved. And I think it's the sort of thing that, as you said, if we had take if we were pitching the approach that Ike is taking in 2016, I'm not sure it would have been very successful because uh, the the market just wasn't at that level of sophistication yet. Nor were we, I, I think, to understand kind of how how you need to think about doing this in a real way. So, anyways, that that I think is a is a good point on your part. Um, with respect to the neuro deal, uh, it was a, a very Silicon Valley experience, as you've pointed out. Um, really personal connections and previous experience working with folks that uh, are sort of unique to this area. We have a, a um, had a connection to the neuro founders from academia long ago through my co-founder, Yur Vandenberg, and that kicked off a conversation about neuro's interest in applying their technology beyond last mile delivery and our interest in not starting from scratch and avoiding some of those pitfalls uh, from the playbook that we talked about before that turned into a discussion about the right way to structure an effort around trucking. You know, we had come from Uber where um, we had found it was pretty difficult actually to build a, an AV car and an AV truck product at the same time. And so we really wanted to be able to focus and control our own destiny and kind of head off on our own direction. And the neuro license allowed us to do that. And so we, we literally copied their software repository from their server in Mountain View onto our server and drove the server to San Francisco and began applying it to trucking, right? There are a lot of changes and differences between a what I call a toaster, right? If you've seen the neuro uh, delivery robot that, that is really intended for a different environment. And we've made a lot of those changes. We've added quite a bit of technology. And so the stack is really ours today to a large degree, but it gave us a huge head start. And then to your point, um, I think the combination of the team's experience, this kind of perspective that we have that, that is pretty unique about how to build a product in the space and this technology asset that Neuro provided uh, gave us the opportunity to raise a lot of capital very quickly uh, early in the, in the company's life, uh, something we're very fortunate to have done and I think has given us the resources to make so much progress over the last couple of years.
Well, hey, Alden, it looks like we're coming up on time. Um, I had a few more things that I would have loved to have covered, and I'm sure the audience would love to hear that as well. And, you know, if uh, we ever do get back to normal and our paths cross in person, I'm sure we could go on and on for hours. But um, hopefully everyone enjoyed this, and we just wish you the best, Alden, and, and your team over at Ike, uh, expecting just amazing things and looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Charlie. Great talking with you.